Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, back in the north again, are you now? How does that feel? Uh, it, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing some students face-to-face and getting back to the day job, which is what I love. Yeah, and, and I imagine you'll be an enormous boon to the quinoa and fancy water economy in Liverpool as well. <laughs> certainly, certainly. <laughs> and we probably in their hands to go, here he is, get out, crack out the fanciest water, add a pound to the price tag. <laughs> uh, later, we shall be hearing from Catherine Albany Ward, founder of Colourblind Awareness, in what for me was uh, an eye-opening interview, which is kind of ironic, I suppose, but... Um, <laughs> I, I certainly learned some things, and Catherine was going to make sure I learned some things, but it's a fascinating interview, and I guarantee that most of you will share my surprise at the impact that colour blindness has on individuals and on the economy of football. But first, some news, Kieran, and of course, uh, Derby rumbles on, it will do for some time. Mel Morris has continued his not-me-governor charm offensive, and Kieran had a touch of nostalgia. Our old friend Eric Alonso is back on the scene, and he's still talking bollocks. He's talking completely out of his uh, his other orifice at present. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's put some stuff up uh, to say you know sort of the Illuminati uh, are are preventing uh, a successful takeover, and the uh, you know the EFL are evil, and so on. Uh, none, none of which are, are true. Um, so uh, Mel Morris is trying to persuade people that he is completely innocent of what's... You know, he says, yes, I've made some mistakes, but it's COVID. But uh, yeah. I think he used the word coercion from other clubs in respect of the EFL. And yeah. uh, you know, the EFL have got a tough gig. You know, and we, we will praise them when they do well and we will criticise them when they don't. But uh, th- there isn't a vendetta against Mel Morris you know it's simply not the case they are ultimately they are administrators um and they they have a uh, they have a protocols that they have to follow um but there, there's more and more stuff which is coming out and I've got to say as each piece of information is revealed the greater the concern for Derby County yeah. um Wickham Wanderers are threatening um to, to sue, we're not quite sure who they're going to sue. Whether they're going to sue Mel Morris or Derby County or the EFL, uh, in respect of they said, well, had this taken place, 
you know, had the administration taken place a few months ago, they wouldn't have been relegated. But also, one of the things that Mel said in his interview that, based on uh, the the revised calculations uh, in respect of financial fair play, and, and this broadly ties into the numbers I'd calculated two or three years ago, um, that they would be looking at perhaps a four point penalty. Um, for breaches of financial fair play for the period 2016 to 18. And now had that been applied last season, clearly Derby would have been relegated and Wickham Wanderers would have survived. And, and Wickham are now saying, well, we are worse off due to yeah. the fact that then, you know, that we know that there's a, there's a steep drop between the Premier League and the Championship in, in terms of TV money. The same is true between the Championship and League One because clubs in the Championship get 80% of TV monies from the EFL and clubs in the uh, in League One only get 12%. So they're saying, you know, we, 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 can't, we, we can't have this parallel uh, fixture list, which the EFL were proposing a couple of months ago, but we are, we've suffered financially. So they they are you know and, and this could be a bit of ambulance chasing from their legal advisors from all we know but that they are uh, they they are unhappy um there was a very detailed article in in the athletic uh sort of summarizing the extent of uh, derby county's debts and uh, there was a change in legislation which uh, which has just come through which means that the tax authorities previously they were on the lowest tier of creditors now they're entitled to uh, 100% uh, of uh, of all tax owing since the legislation changed um the, the figures i've been given we we are talking somewhere you know low low to mid 20s of what is owed to the tax authorities so that would have to be paid you've got uh football debts estimated around about 10 million so yeah we've already talked spoken you know 35 million pounds um has to be paid 100% then a quarter of the remaining debts of which i believe the the unsecured creditors uh, yeah, in the region of five to ten million, and and then we come to Mel Morris himself. Now, Mel Morris is has got over a hundred million pounds lent to uh, Derby County. If he insists on taking twenty five percent of that, it means that the administrators are going to have to sell Derby County for a fee of around about sixty million pounds for a club which is in League One and doesn't own its stadium. That's that's simply fanciful. So. It's it's really concerning as to where we are at present. See, the Wickham issue illustrates, Kieran, the EFL's problem, because if I was a Wickham fan, I'd be absolutely 100% behind what they're doing. But of course, as the EFL always point out, they're, they're looking after 72 clubs who all have different interests and priorities and all, who all think they're the most important club in the EFL, don't they? Yes, it, it is a classic case of trying to herd sheep as far as the EFL are concerned. They've got minimal resources because the clubs vote on the resources of the EFL. And of course, every extra pound that gets spent at EFL HQ is one less pound that's being distributed to the clubs. So uh, Derby fans are going to push back on this, understandably, the Wick- Wickham they were taken over a couple of years ago by a lawyer, so you know he he will know his 
his rights. Um, yeah, and it could be that yeah, the claim will be against the the football club, which is in administration. So they end up with twenty five percent of something or a hundred percent of nothing. Yeah, there's, uh, there are two things I want to raise. One is about a group of people who are very important, and one is about an individual who less so, but maybe. And the first group of people is the Derby staff, who are obviously at the moment very anxious about the future. Yes. Uh, I don't think the Derby staff have been treated particularly well. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we have been contacted by members of staff at Derby to say, you know, can can we explain the, the position? Uh, because they are getting nothing from the club. And this sort of really goes back to the 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 story broke on Friday night. The the staff were effectively given an email, my understanding, to say you know turn up for work uh, the following few days. But very little communication is coming from the the leaders at uh, at Derby County Football Club, and 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 that's that's a that's a terrible thing because you know, leaders are supposed to lead. And they are supposed to show initiative and they are supposed to have a duty of care towards the members of staff. And, you know, Mel Morris choosing to go on a charm offensive with the local press and prioritising that over his employees, I don't think is, in, uh, is indicative of a person who has got the priorities right. Yeah, it's not good for staff, is it? Every time they turn the radio on, they hear Mel Morris explaining exactly how it's not their fault and they're still... Completely in the dark. The second person I do want to talk about, and I know there will be Derby fans saying we shouldn't be giving this man the oxygen of publicity, but he was an important player and potentially could still be an important player. And that's Eric Alonso. And essentially in this bizarre statement he released, first of all, he said that he's going to be so honest, he'll be prevented from buying a football club ever again, he thinks. Then he says it's not Mel Morris's fault. I don't care what people say. It's not Mel Morris's fault. It's people round him. So I'd be interested to know who you think he means. And his last statement is that the EFL, he knows for a fact, want to take over the club, which is one of the most bizarre things I've re- ever read in my life. And I've read some bizarre things, Kieran, trust me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've, I've seen this uh, message from him, which uh, came out on Monday. And it it's 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 fantasy it's fanciful um it, it's just causing additional distress I, I don't think anybody will take it seriously but if they did you you could understand people getting distressed um it, it's it's complete uh nonsense uh he he would have been very very dangerous for derby county because his plan was to uh, was to borrow money to buy the club or effectively get the club to borrow the money to buy Derby County. Now, we've seen that take place with Manchester United um, when the Glazers acquired Manchester United. Now, yeah, A, Manchester United are in the Premier League. B, Manchester United are a global brand and can generate huge sponsorship and kit manufacturing deals. Um, and they've got a 75,000 capacity stadium. So at least Manchester United did have large amounts of cash coming in. We've also seen this take place with, with Burnley, uh, and I think people are a little bit concerned 
with regards to Burnley, which you know I've always said have been a fantastically well-run club financially. Uh, but at least again, they've got the the benefit of Premier League monies. Uh, but to, to to for his his proposals in respect of Derby were very very high risk indeed. He should not be let within you know a hundred miles of a football club in my view. Well, this is <clears throat> this is my fear, Kieran, that in this statement in which he defends Mel Morris, uh, <clears throat> which obviously puts him on Mel Morris's side, attacks the EFL, which he will think puts him on Derby County fan side. I, I, it worries me that. This is a man who still thinks he has a part to play in the outcome of this uh, terrible scenario. And, and obviously we'll be thinking that the club is available for a lot less than it was a few weeks ago when he was after it. Um, it well, it, it, it could be uh, acquired at a, a lower price, but I think we've got to be realistic. You know, whoever buy, who is buying Derby County, there's a very severe chance that they are buying a League One club because... Yeah. There's an automatic 12-point penalty for going into administration. There is a high probability of a further points deduction coming in respect of some of the financial issues. And, you know, the, the club a few months ago didn't have 11 players because, you know, so it had to cut its wage bill. So therefore, the players that it has recruited um, are em- effectively embargo players. So there's a limit as to what they can be paid and they're on relatively short-term contracts. So, you know, you put all of that together. Uh, if if Wayne Rooney manages to keep them up, it, it will be one of the greatest managerial achievements yeah. of all time. Eric Alonso doesn't strike me as a man who wants to buy a League One club, as it happens. I was um, I apologise to any Derby fans if you heard amusement in my voice there. It wasn't anything to do with the story. It was the fact that we're having to do this part of the pod on Zoom because my battery ran out on my laptop because a posh woman that's been working with Ali decided to go off with my charger last night uh, in the way that posh people do. Uh, so if there are sound qualities, differences, that, that's the reason why. But the reason I'm laughing is I, I'm able to see uh, an ongoing battle between the Baroness and Finley because three times while Kieran was discussing that, <laughs> the Baroness shut his door and three times Finley opened it again with a big smile on his doggy face. And uh, he's currently winning, I have to say. Yes. Um, and it's it's not just Derby, Kieran, I'm afraid, is it? Another championship team uh, in bother. And I believe, just, just to show I have been paying attention, they are the club with the highest turnover wage ratio in that division, which takes some doing. It, it is. Uh, yes, we're talking uh, a sad story, sad bad news coming out of the uh, the Majdad. Uh, Reading's accounts, when I saw them, I, I calculated that they'd lost around about £85 million over three years, and you're only allowed to lose 39 So I was amazed at the time that uh, the EFL hadn't taken things further, but clearly they're up, they were under a transfer embargo. And... Um, the, uh, I think the EFL is taking a bit of a sort of a, a good cop, bad cop approach to to clubs in breach of FFP. They don't want to go down the route of having to formally charge them and then mm. convene a panel, and you know both sides have to employ very expensive lawyers. Um, so they're now trying to sort of uh, go through a mediation route, and it looks as if uh, Reading are going to uh, accept. Uh, a points deduction somewhere between six to nine. I think it could have been as high as twelve had it gone mm. to a charge. Um, and and there is, you know, it, it's a bit like, uh, you know, if, if you get nicked, 
sometimes if you you know if you if you, if you do a plea you're, you know, and, and this 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 comes from members of my family, so I can say this with some degree of <laughs> some degree of confidence. Uh, you know, Uncle Terry says, you know, it's uh, you know, it's always a chance to meet some of my old mates and just going away for a while, um, and uh, you know, that, that, and, and you get a shorter sentence. So this is the equivalent, um, but it does now mean that we've got two clubs uh, potentially with significant points deductions could be occupying the bottom two places of the championship and. Well, it's not football, is it? it? It's not. Two things, Kieran. Before we discuss uh, Reading's wedding, Reading's actual um, finances, the mediation route. It, it sounds fair and it sounds grown up, but to me, it also sounds like you're going to get a different outcome with each club you mediate with. And sometimes football fans want to know that the rules are the rules, and they apply to every club under whatever circumstances, and that it might be galling for fans of other clubs to see a club going to the EFL saying, look, we're, we're going to hand ourselves in. If you want, we'll grasp somebody else up. But is there a way we can we can knock a couple of points off this deduction? And it, it, it seems to me that, yes, it is the right route, but also I can understand why fans of other clubs might be annoyed by it. Yes, because it could be. Let, let's say that Reading do get six points and then they stay up on the last day of the season by one point and people say, well, hold on, you know, they, they, they should really have had 12 and my yeah. club's been relegated. Yeah, yeah. And we get to that position... Uh, which we've seen, you know, with with Wickham and Derby, uh, e- e- everybody's unhappy, um, and also that there's a sl- there's a slightly unease from my point of view that we're sort of entering the realms of some form of three D chess, whereby yeah. clubs will delay, delay, delay coming to an agreement with the EFL because they know that if they get a deduction this season, they'll go down. And then at the start of next season, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll arrange it now. And you know that that's an extra year with extra TV money and an extra year with a chance of getting into the Premier League. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's imperfect, but yeah. Well, also club, clubs could do the opposite to that, Kieran, and wait until April and go, well, there we are. We're we're eight points off seventh. We're not going. We're not going up. We can't go down even with a twelve point deduction. Let's hand ourselves in now and sort it out. And then basically, there's no punishment at all. Then is there? Well, I mean, to be fair to the EFL, they introduced what was known as the Ken Bates rule. Now, I don't I don't know who this was named after, but <laughs> you, you, you may. You may remember Leeds United got relegated to League One many years ago, and then the day they got relegated, Ken Bates said, "Oh well, we're we're going into administration, yes, yes, and we get a further if we get a further points penalty." Capel and the other clubs are saying, "Hold on, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not saying he's a wily old fox, um, but he's a wily old fox." So, so, so I think what th- there is now a cutoff date beyond which you can't have uh, okay. uh, such an arrangement. Right. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit more about the details of Reading's finances. Who are their owners for a start off? And also tell us a little bit more about the eye-watering amount they pay out in wages for every hundred pound they get in income. Um, yeah, they've they've got um, they've got Chinese old owners. Uh, you know, John Majewski has, has passed away, and he was he was looking you know, he was he was looking to move the club on. Um, so they they do have owners who, um, yeah, and I, I don't want to go and fall into stereotypes here. Who are don't appear to be that familiar with football. And there's a picture of the owners, uh, you know, that's gone up on social media 
where one of them, I, th- I think they're knitting or they're, they're you yeah, know, they're all they're engrossed in their phone. They're, they're, they're not concentrating on, on the football. But then I, I suspect you, you could take a photograph of 90% of people oh. at a football match. And at some point they're staring on their phone or they're picking their nose or something, which doesn't look as if they're fully engrossed in a match. Um, so yeah, they, they have overseas owners who have put huge sums into the club, but in terms of the wages, um, the, the wages for the last three seasons have have been over two hundred pounds for every hundred pounds the club's been generating, wow. and they are paying in the region of seventeen, eighteen, nineteen grand a week, which is which is high by um, championship standards. Not not hugely high, but it, it certainly yeah. puts them well in the top half of the table, um, and yeah, that automatically puts you at risk they they've also invested you know f- you know 50 million in the uh in in the transfer market and and we and we know that the transfer market um is uh, is pretty tight in the championship so that was in the four seasons up to 2020 uh so yeah, an awful lot of money is going out on on the talent and they've not delivered in terms of uh delivering uh you know d- delivering playoffs or or, uh, or or automatic promotion so uh what what I think we're now seeing from some club owners is what I describe as go go stop. I.e., they, yeah. they 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 gamble for a couple of seasons and then they have to go and slam the brakes on in the third because they of of potential financial fair play issues. And again, it's it's not football. It starts to become a, a business game and all that type of nonsense. You know, that's that's not what we go to football for. Yeah, and again, Reading fans now have that same sinking cold brick feeling in the pit of their stomach that Derby fans have as well. Is is this the end of it though? If if the club and the EFL agree a six point, nine point deduction, is that the story over or did Reading have to adapt their behaviour in the future? They, they, they will be asked to follow a business plan and that will be monitored. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I think the EFL are certainly showing teeth at present, which, which is good. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen at the next EFL owners meeting. They might all turn yeah. around and say, well, actually, you know, it's happened to two of us. Yeah, could it happen to a few more? We'll, we'll go and relax the rules, which ma- makes it very difficult for, you know, ultimately the executives of the EFL are, are employees and they they have to do what the shareholders say. And one more question, Kieran. The, the, the Derby news crept out sneaked out you almost acted as midwife to the derby news if you encouraged it you lured it out like laying a little bit of lettuce in front of a tortoise is there any significance in the time because this seemed to come from a telegraph journalist again rather than being announced by the club or the efl it seemed first of all to appear uh on social media before it was fully announced is there any significance to the timing is it is derby related you know are they looking at derby and going right this is the time for us to hold our hands up i think there'll certainly be less attention on reading at present so yeah it could be that classic good time to bury bad news because uh the concern uh is you know is derby county going to be able to pay the wages next week whereas we anticipate that's not going to be a problem to the same extent at reading because the club's not in administration and and the the owners appear to be funding the losses, whereas 
you know, Mel Morris, who, you know, he, Mel Morris made his, his money through things like uh, Candy Crush on, on, you know, these, these, uh, these games that you can play on the phones and he's just gone, uh, you know, uninstalled delete and walked away. He's still talking about a retractable roof over the stadium though. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, how he, <laughs> he, he, he reckons he'll, uh, he, I, I think there's actually a, some form of arena in Derby already. So how on earth he's going to make money for 330 days of the year and yeah. what on earth the, the, the groundsman's going to say, because you know, he, he knows how chippy groundsmen are. Oh, all of them! It's they're they're like sound men on the TV shows. They they are the <laughs> surliest, they are the surliest people you can ever work with. So it sounds like, Kieran, to reassure Reading fans on a scale of one to ten, this doesn't seem as bad as Derby, does it for them? No, no, no. It's it's uh, it's significantly less severe because um, there there is a risk of having no Derby County, and I can't say that the same risk exists with regards to Reading Football Club. Well, I wish we didn't have to say that. Um, this week's Panorama show on BBC, Kieran, looked at the way football clubs treat academy players, and you have your own take on the economics of the academies, don't you? Uh, yes. Uh, a- academies are viewed by some clubs as profit centres, and there- there's a problem uh, in football, in the way that where we presently stand, as far as academies are concerned, um, the the Premier League used to give to the clubs in the EFL something called parachute, pay- sorry, something called solidarity payments, yeah. and these were you know, quite substantial sums. Um, and initially, the, the the clubs in the EFL said, well, "Well, thank you very much. That's that's very kind," and that and therefore they got used to spending money at a certain level because they knew that these solidarity payments were coming in. And then the Premier League turned around and said, um, OK, we're not going to give you solidarity payments anymore unless you agree to something called the Elite Player Performance Plan, which effectively allows Premier League clubs to snaffle, I think is the technical word, mm. any promising child who is at a... Uh, at the academy of of an EFL club, um, at a set fee, and these fees are uh, are peanuts. So yeah, it, it was it was a classic piece of business manipulation by the Premier League. Uh, give the prem give, give the EFL clubs a bit of cash. Uh, they then become dependent upon it, and he's <laughs> just left the room again. Fiddly game now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, the trouble is, he's very good at opening doors, but he's not worked out how to close them, which means that the Baroness has to do that job for him. Um, well, you're, you're spoiled. You've got people waiting on your hand and foot. <laughs> yeah, the Baroness just shut the door again. <laughs> yes, go on, Karen. Sorry. Um, so the the EFL clubs really were between a rock and a hard place. You know, they they were committed to uh, playing budgets uh, on on the assumption that the solidarity payments were going to continue ad infinitum and then the EFL gave them uh, a take it or leave it choice you know either you you agree to our terms which means we can take your players uh, or not so so that's that's one issue um i think that the main issue in, in respect of the panorama program was was twofold first of all do football clubs have a duty of care towards these children, and they are children, yep. um, who are taken on. Now, 
everybody knows 99.8% of, of the kids are not going to get through the system in terms of, um, and it has to be said that some clubs are absolutely fantastic. They, they give clubs who wouldn't, they would give players who would not previously had an opportunity to, so some of them have uh, contracts with uh, really good schools, private schools. Um, the, the category one academies are committed towards education because they will lose their category one status. Um, but uh, are the kids completely focused on education? Because you know the the, the big the big carrot of, of a successful career in football, which is very competitive, is put before them. Um, not always. Um, you know, do many of the kids who who don't come out of the system do they go on to have successful careers elsewhere? Yes, they do. There is still a significant minority of these people, uh, of these young children who, and and here, you know, parenting issues. You know, there, there are other stakeholders involved uh, in in the welfare of these children who could potentially have done more. Um, could could they could things have been better? I think they can. So um, that didn't reflect very well. And then there was a third issue in the show. Um, when it came to unscrupulous agents and, and there was one agency and there was one agent in particular who was um, exposed by the Panorama team, you are not allowed to have an agent uh, under the age of 16 mm. because you are a child. Um, and so th- those are the football rules. But what we are seeing, and again, you know, it's a minority, but we are agency or intermediaries is an unregulated market um, there are agents going round spotting young players, and then the approach is okay. I can't necessarily approach the player at the match in case you know there are some scouts here and, and I get reported. But they'll take a note of the the player's name uh, or the sorry the child's name. Which, yeah, we are talking about Absolutely. children. Yeah, um, they'll take it, and then there'll be approaches made on social media or what they will do is they'll do some detective work and find out about the family. And yeah. then it's gifts to the family in the form of, you know, it could be boots for the kid. It could be a PS five. It could be some cash. Yeah. You know, and the greatest thing about football in my view is that it is one of the few meritocracies in this country you know if you if you come from a certain background you've got a far better chance of getting a job in in legal in yep. in in finance in politics and so on we we all know that to be the case even in your your profession you think about the media profession you know there are there are people who who come who come into the media because they have relatives who are in in football it doesn't matter how posh or how poor you are. It, if, if, if you can do it, you will be spotted and you will go through the system and, and you, you can become a professional footballer. So it's absolutely fantastic that it is a meritocracy, but it does mean that um, kids from uh, more socially disadvantaged backgrounds, they are vulnerable to these predator agents. And that, that was one of the things which was exposed uh, by the show. And, and I think everybody knows this takes place. How the FA and the other football authorities can deal with this is a real challenge because nobody's got an incentive to dib in these rogues. You know, the, the players aren't going to do it because 
they could be up on a charge or their parents could be up on a charge. The parents only be, aren't going to do it because you know, they could potentially have been financially, they, they financially may have benefited from this. And of course, the agents themselves, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a rough and tough industry. And some of them will say, well, this is how it, this is how it has to be done because it's an unregulated industry. There's a race to the bottom. And if I don't offer this kid a PS5, yeah. somebody else will. Well, the economics is the problem. My industry, broadcasting in particular, is full of middle class and upper class people because they they can afford or their parents can afford to support them yeah. in the early years when they're doing jobs that are either badly paid or not paid at all. And my guess is that in football, most of the kids are from family backgrounds where it's very easy for an agent to wave a bit of money in front of mum's face or a PS5 in front of dad's face. And the sort of thing that doesn't come easy to them is being offered to them by an agent, and you can't blame them for having their head turned. But the problem is, as you say, there's nothing to stop the agents approaching the parents. They're not allowed to approach the kid, but they can approach the parents. And again, we have to keep saying kid. As you say, we have to keep saying child because this is what they are. Even, you know, we're both at an age when we know that 18-year-olds are still kids, let's face it, let alone the 12-year-olds or the 8-year-olds that some clubs are dealing with. But this is a, an issue we will continue to talk about because, unfortunately, there will be rogue agents in the game forever. Yeah. Uh, and we have to acknowledge as well that most agents operating in the game are decent, honourable people who do so within the rules. But, you know, like everybody else, they're trying to make a few bob as we are and sometimes we bend the podcast rules Kieran mainly just to annoy Guy but you know um, <laughs> more problems with investors behind some of China's biggest clubs yes uh, yeah, we, we've seen the winners of the Chinese Super League uh, effectively go out of existence a few months ago and now we have, and first of all, apologies with my pronunciation. I, I have been contacted, and this is what I love about our listeners. Uh, I have been contacted by some of our listeners to say that uh, my pronunciation is poor. Uh, and I, I take you, it. You and, you and me both, mate. Yeah. Uh, especially with regards to my favourite uh, Australian vampire bank, which, <laughs> which should be apparently Macquarie. Uh, oh, okay. So, uh, so, uh, or, or Mac- yeah, Macquarie. Um, but this, and, and God knows how this is going to come out. This is uh, Guangzhou Everglades, um, which is again a, a, a club in the CSL. And the way that Chinese football is operated is that most of the clubs there are offshoots of corporates, um, and, and that sort of you know takes me back to. Um, that takes me back to sort of you know the, the old Eastern European days where you know we, we used to have all of those fantastic clubs in East Germany and Romania and so on and Carl Zeiss Jena. Oh, Carl Zeiss yeah, Jena. yeah yes. of course. The um, factory, yeah. So well, well most Russian clubs were belong to uh, a factory or the army or the KGB, so they were all subsidized by a particular part of the government back in the sixties and seventies, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, and, and and you know, for, for anybody that's got any football history and romance, that that's fantastic, and that's okay if if they're all state owned. But if they are private company, there could be a problem because uh, Everglades' parent company has got three hundred million dollars worth of debt, which it's unable to pay. Right. So the first thing, of course, that you do is you turn the taps off of all of the parts of the group, which is losing money, and at present in the in the Chinese Super League. Football is a loss-making business. So um, I, I think sort of the rush to China, which 
which was uh, very significant four or five years ago. Uh, you know, there was one transfer window where CSL clubs spent more money than the Premier League, for example. Mm. That is that is in reverse. Um, and I know the Chinese government, you know, the, the Chinese government, they don't worry about individual transfer windows. Yeah, they, they, they have a, a 10, 20 and 30 year plan with regards to football. But it does look that fo- as, as if football is becoming less of a critical issue uh, as far as the, the Chinese authorities are concerned, which is going to give them a problem if they want to host the World Cup at some point. Mm. Do you know, I sometimes wonder, Kieran, uh, or worry about the segue between news stories. One minute we were talking about agents, and then suddenly I launched into investment in China. And now we're going from investment in China to me saying, hallelujah, Phil Collins is back at Paris Saint-Germain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is this is a really uh, bizarre story. I'm, I'm not quite sure that it's within our remit, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I tweeted it. So the producer guy has spotted this. Um, Paris Saint-Germain used to come out to a song from Phil Collins' No Jacket Required album, uh, which was, of course, a staple amongst all footballers uh, in that particular era. Uh, and the song is called Who Said I Would? And then uh, PSG decided they were going to change the the song to which the the the, uh, the the players come out and there have been protests there have been protests from the PSG fan base that we want Phil Collins back and the club has conceded mm-hmm. uh, so uh, yeah it, it's it, you know you and I are both from you know, broadly the same musical tastes and you know that me as a as a militant goth and, and i'm sitting here proudly wearing my sisters of mercy t-shirt as you can probably see uh-huh. um it, uh, you know it, phil, phil collins was the antichrist to us but yep. you know I'm, i i i am staggered that there have been protests in uh yeah, for phil collins but yeah all other musical tastes exist and clearly uh, the, the sophistication with which i always associated parisians has now completely evaporated well, maybe being Parisians, it's a, an ironic postmodern appreciation of Phil Collins. Who knows? But the, the thing is, Kieran, as we know, football fans can be a conservative breed with a small C. Witness Mohamed Al Fayed when he got rid of Diddy David Hamilton as Fulham's PA announcer, ex 70s DJ, and, and replaced him with Keith Allen for for three games at the start of the season and then got rid of Keith Allen because Keith Allen and his mates did a, an Egyptian sand dance. Before one of the home games, <laughs> lo and behold, Diddy David Hamilton was back. If you football fans are used to what they they like, what they're used to, they don't particularly like change. You know, there's there are still Palace fans who yearn for the days of the Palace dollies, twelve girls in old Palace shirts and skin tight white leather shorts. But they're probably not nostalgia reasons. I have to say for those. <laughs> um, Kieran, I think. Every one of our listeners knows by now that you are colourblind. Yes. And and to be honest, I, I've always in the past put that down as a quirky peccadillo, like being teetotal and supporting Brighton. Yes. Um, so, so you arranged for me to talk to Catherine Albany Ward, founder of Colourblind Awareness, to explain the full impact of colourblindness on football fans and its financial implications. <laughs> Catherine, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you for speaking to us. 
I feel slightly guilty, I have to say, Catherine, having done some research, because I went onto your brilliant site and one animation said, you probably haven't given these problems a lot of thought. <laughs> and they were, they were, I'm afraid, absolutely right. I, um, until I met Kieran, I, I don't think it was anything I'd ever given any thought to. Is that a common response? Yeah, and I'm guilty of it myself as well, because my brother-in-law is severely colourblind. And it wasn't until it directly affected my son that I suddenly thought, hmm, this is actually quite serious and mm. I better apply my mind to it. So you're, you're just like everyone else. I wouldn't worry about it. Oh, I do. I'm very sensitive, Catherine. I do worry <laughs> about these things. But now but, you know there's no escape because now we know you know, don't we, Kieran? We do indeed. <laughs> that, sounded, that sounded really ominous. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of our listeners who haven't done their research, Catherine, just give us an idea of some of the numbers and why you felt you had to fire, found colourblind awareness. So the numbers are quite shocking, really, if you've not heard about it before, because everyone thinks they know something about colour blindness. Hmm. Um, but it's not till you look into the implications of it that you realise that it's actually one in 12 males who inherit red green types. There are other types as well, but I won't dwell on those at the moment. Um, and only one in 200 women. So there are, I think it's one in seven women that are actually carriers of colour blindness and can pass it on to their sons. Um, so one in 12 men is 8%. Uh, and if you add the women and the men's figures together, you come up just under 5% of people who are affected. Um, but in sports like football, it's more because obviously more men watch football than women do. Mm. So it's more like 6% or so of a stadium, a capacity stadium. So we, the figures we have for Wembley are about 5,000 people at a live game, game at Wembley would be colourblind. Mm. So you say people think they know about colour blindness. All all I really know is when Kieran told me early in our relationship that he could never be a train driver, and it's, yeah. it's and you sort of walk away thinking, well, that's not the worst thing in the world. But then, as I learn more from Kieran and Kieran, cause yesterday because we're here to talk about sport and finance, and and just yesterday, Kieran, in the Brighton Leicester game, you had a, an experience which is typical. Um. Yes. Uh, so Brighton play in blue and white stripes. Um, Leicester play in something which to I, I don't know what the colour is. It's it's muddy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it could it could be green. Uh, it could be it could be brown. For a while. I, I don't really know what these colours are. Um, and the referee and linesman they were wearing shirts which were. Yeah, it, it, the way to think about color blindness is that if you look at things and if, if you were looking at them on a black and white TV, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Well, I couldn't tell them apart because they were some form of red or purple, and and it, and it was made worse by the fact that the ref referee and the Leicester team had uh, black shorts. So you know, normally you're looking for something to distinguish. Um, you know, and you know, at one stage, you know, why, why is the referee just not not make our left back? And of course, mm. yeah, you know, I just got it wrong. Um, so it and and it's it doesn't stop you playing sport, but it slows you down when you're making a decision, and therefore it impacts upon players as well. Kieran, I wish I could tell you what colour Leicester were wearing, but obviously I I don't watch it if Brighton win, so that's <laughs> not an issue. Um, and, and Catherine, it's it's not just kits, though, is it? Tell us about some of the other problems for the colour blind football goer. 
Uh, well, there are lots of issues in stadiums. We do stadium audits for UEFA to try and pick these up for their competition finals. It's things like not being able to see um, when you're buying tickets. You have problems distinguishing which seats, um, pro- which seat pricing you're looking at, uh, you know, the colours for that. Especially um, season ticket pricing can be a problem or selecting a ticket. Um, you know, you want to sit next to your friends and you can't work out which seats have been taken and which ones are free and that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's wayfinding information and stadium plans that cause problems and um, also not being able to see emergency signage sometimes. Uh, and even just getting to the stadium, not even related to um, what's inside the stadium, something like a tube maps causes big problems as well. Um, so there's that side of it from the spectator's point of view. And then also on TV, Issues with the graphics, being able to see whether or not somebody scored a penalty has been a big problem. Um, it, basically, anything where colour conveys the information and only colour, there's going to be a potential for a problem or two. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today in Notion? You do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football, and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Do you know what, Catherine? I'm I'm a very proud Londoner. I must have looked at that tube map virtually every day of my life, and it's never ever once occurred to me that it might be an issue for people who can't distinguish colour. And also, just talking now about emergency signage. So, there, as you say, at, at Wembley, there are five thousand people who, in in the event of a, an emergency, God forbid, w- would be struggling to to discern where to go. Yeah, I mean, you can do things about it, but because. 
emergency signage is a green color. That's a specific shade of green that's really similar to the color of concrete to people with um, one of the most common types of color blindness. So, yeah, it can, it can effectively disappear against the stadium wall. <laughs> how, um, how many types of color blindness are there, Catherine? Well, there's there's three main types, and it's all to do with um, the biology of your eye. So, in the back of your eye, you have cone cells that um, pick up signals um, from light wavelengths, and you have some one that picks up blue colours, one that picks up green, and one that picks up red. And in colour blindness, one of the cone types doesn't work properly or in more severe cases you don't have one of the cone types so for for example my son doesn't have any cones in his eye that will pick up green light at all but that also means that because of where the red and green elements of the light spectrum are it's very close to where he would pick up red and there's a bit of overlap so he doesn't see red either and that's the same for most people who are colorblind they have issues across any colours potentially that have an element of of red or green in. Um, But the blue cone types is really rare. So Mm -hmm. the statistics I gave you were for the red-green types. And you can have a severe form of it or a less severe form of it. In the past 20 years, thankfully, clubs have really upped their game in terms of disabled access, things like commentary for blind fans, quiet space for autistic Mm -hmm. fans and so on. Are they even aware there's a community of colourblind fans that need help? Well, in the UK, they should be. Um, European clubs should be as well because um, we did the guidance for UEFA in 2017 and we did that in partnership with the FA as well. So that information has been out for quite a few years now. And the Premier League have also issued guidance uh, with the EFL to all of their clubs on ticketing, on general stadium issues and issues on for colourblindness in general. Um but most people who were that seem to be at the decision-making end of things don't seem to be receiving this information or understanding how it's relevant to them. So they should know, but they don't. I mean, we can see that by what happens on the ground and on, on the pitch and the number of kit clashes that there were just in the Premier League last year. Um, the message isn't getting through at all. Um, are, are clubs legally obliged to address the issue? Do, does colourblindness fall under disability legislation? It does in as much as if you put people in a situation where they can't see information, be it kits or whatever else, compared to most people, uh, then it's a disability. But if everyone was watching in black and white, it wouldn't be a disability because they wouldn't be any more disabled than anyone else watching in black and white. So it depends on the situation. Um, And I think half the problem is that nobody has the confidence to take on the clubs to say, you've discriminated against me. You know, the amount of money that they will be up against would put people off bringing a challenge. But obviously we receive lots of complaints from people who can't buy tickets um, and, you know, can't watch games on the TV. And it's uh, the only way to really make change is not really through the the legislation, which would apply. Um, It's through persuading clubs and persuading competition organisers and leagues that they need to do it because it's the right thing to do and because it affects them at the end of the day commercially, which I know we're going to come on to talk Mm -hmm. to about, you know, the financial implications of it, I think have been completely overlooked, but it doesn't mean they're not there. 
well, that's the problem as well, isn't it? Because they don't think long term because you don't only have to persuade them that it's important. You have to persuade them that it won't cost them a fortune to make these changes. Um, <clears throat> I know the the answer to this next question, uh, <laughs> Catherine, because Kieran has told me quite a lot, quite a lot on a very regular basis. But are, <laughs> are TV broadcasters and advertisers doing enough about colour clashes on TV? Or will that only happen when thousands of colourblind fans start to cancel their subscriptions or stop watching? Well, it's a difficult one for me to answer because I don't have those relationships with the broadcasters, um, although I'm starting to. Um, I think if they realised what was happening, they would probably take steps to protect their financial interests. Um, But I think that they also don't really realise what's happening either. So they might be aware that there are kit clashes, but maybe they're not making the connection that that means that however many tens, hundreds of thousands of people are actually switching off um, and and making their product, which is selling advertising at the end of the day. uh, It's hitting that because um, they're not getting the number of people watching the matches that they think they are. And it will eventually have a knock-on effect if they don't do something about it soon because people in the community who are affected are much, much more vociferous about it now than they ever were before. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we, you know, we got really good coverage in the press, I know Kieran was involved in making sure that happened as well, for all of the Premier League kit clashes last year, um, the Premier League have now taken further steps to advise clubs because I think they're frightened that broadcasters might take steps to interfere um, but I don't know because I don't get involved in the, in those detailed conversations at that kind of a level. Well, Kieran, can I bring you in there? Because I, since knowing you, I've noticed how uh, Catherine used the word vociferous. I've noticed how much more vociferous the, the colourblind community is, for want of a better word, about these issues. But when will broadcasters start to do anything about it? And, and would there be a, a financial impact on them if many, many thousands of people affected stopped subscribing um i I think there would have to be some form of militant action and and that's not going to take place (coughs) because it it doesn't affect every match and what we tend to do is is we moan about it but there are certain matches which i I will simply just switch off because you know when i'm watching match either like if you go to a match and it's live you're there you've already paid the money nothing can be done if you are Watching a match on television, uh, you know, I've, you know, I've always said I, I, I've not watched uh, Wales versus uh, Ireland for, for years because, right. you know, in the rugby or the football, because it's red versus green. And it, and it's just not worth the effort because you have to, you want to enjoy the match. You don't want to be staring at, you know, intently trying to pick up flashes, you know, from you know, from the socks or whatever. Um, so I, I don't think broadcasters will because um, – Color blindness is treated as a joke by the broadcasters yeah. <laughs> and by the the, the broader uh, football industry. And, and, you know, and, and you know what what Catherine does is amazing, and, and, you know, and my hat is permanently doffed uh, in <laughs> her direction. But um, it, it, I think we're sort of patted on the head and, and then then yeah. told to go away and, and leave them to bring out the uh, you know autumn lilac kit that uh you know which which is going to get eight out of ten in the next review in the papers it, it's interesting to hear kieran say that Catherine, because i think most football fans and me included 
until a while ago would have said, well, surely there's some way of telling. You must be able to tell two football teams apart. But quite clearly, you many people can't. No. Um, and it's not always the colour combinations that cause a problem that somebody who only knows a bit about colour blindness might think would cause a problem. Yes. A really bizarre colours, uh, you know, if you don't know about it, would be an issue. So I can't remember who it was who played now. I think it was Leicester against Everton uh, about 18 months ago. One played in peachy orangey colour and the other team played in yellow, which were not their normal uh, home yeah. kits at all and um colorblind people could not tell those at all apart and even gary lineker got involved in that one yeah. <laughs> um so you know it but it doesn't mean you can't solve the problem and one of the pieces of advice that we give is you know if you look at the two kits that are going to be played against each other one you have to um look at them in grayscale make a decision based on the grayscale element of of the colours and if you can't tell them apart in grayscale which is what Kieran said earlier then it's going to be a problem but there's also a problem with the colour of the kits against the colour of the pitch and one thing I've discovered is that kits get designed on a white background which is hilarious when you think about it how can they possibly think that's the right way to design kit colours um and the Premier League have software that works out whether there might be kit clashes I, I know that other leagues will not have that. I definitely know the Premier League does because we were involved in helping them put it together. And that looks at um, a digital version of the kits rather than actual real life colours. So when we looked at some of the kits, uh, potential kit clashes in the FA Cup last year, we had to look at the real colours, not the designer's colour. And we had to look at it compared with the colour of the pitch. But it still isn't hard to do it. You just have to know what you're looking for and, and apply the sort of basic facts to to the issue, which is if it doesn't work in grayscale, you've got to start again. That's ludicrous. I'm, I'm really taken aback by that fact, Catherine, because it's ludicrous that in this in this day and age, this, with modern software that's space age, literally, mm. they're still designing shirt colours against a white background. And, and the fact is, Kieran, as we know, Nothing's red and blue anymore. It's we've just these are just some of the colours that the kit manufacturers have for mm. Premier League clubs: Rhapsody purple, collegiate navy, flaming amber, teal, and and these these are just designed to make more profit. Kieran, that's the problem, isn't it? That's all, all it is is to try and buy new shirts for new fans to spend money on. Yeah, yes, because the football kit business is big business. And Adidas pay Manchester United seventy-five million pounds a year for the rights to uh, be the kit manufacturer. So, yeah, the, the issue we as colourblind people have with the Manchester United kits is, is that we, we can't spot the numbers. Yeah, we, we can we can work out. Yeah, we, we know we know that Luke Shaw is indifferent in stature to Scott McTominay and so on. But you but you don't do it instantly. But yeah, it, but it's, 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 it's all very well me saying this as a football fan. I don't work in the football industry, and at the yeah, you know, and it, and it doesn't provide my income. But if you are a footballer who ha- is colourblind, you are going to have to take a fraction of a second longer to identify one of your teammates. Now, football yeah. is a very fast sport. These foot, colourblind footballers are being discriminated against. They are not able to carry on their trade to its utmost because of the condition that they have. I want to come on to that yeah. more specifically. <laughs> yeah, it, well, just in a moment. But, but first of all, while we're talking about broadcasters, you did have some success with cricket, didn't you, on TV, Catherine? 
Um, well, only a little bit, to be honest. On that, um, we did get one of the um, one of the cricket providers to change. Uh, you know, they have these things called wagon wheels that tell you how many sixes went in one direction and how many fours and that kind of thing. And we yeah, did get was, them to change their graphics. This yeah. was Sunset and Vine, wasn't it? Who yeah. To do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I've been talking to Sky about that recently because it turned out that Ian Botham is colorblind. And when he was uh, using the graphics on Sky, he was ha- he would have a problem using those and he would have to hand over to David Goff. And actually nobody at Sky realised that they could have sorted that out for him. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting. Mm. I've I've got a history of Sunset and Vine. I used to do a live show for them years ago. Uh, who was it you dealt with there? Can you remember? Uh, it was Dylan Jane. I don't know if he's still there. It's quite a while ago that, now. That makes me feel really old because he was the tea boy <laughs> on the show that I did. <laughs> did. Sunset and Vine are a good company to work for. Did they make these changes reluctantly or did was their attitude was, oh, my God, we just didn't know? No, they were really good. And and Sky are doing the same thing now. I had a conversation with Sky again last week. Uh, they are really keen to make changes. Um, so I think we will see changes certainly in graphics um, because once one starts, they all, they'll all do it. Um, but the, the kits and issues for players, I think, is a different kettle of fish altogether. But, yeah. Because, yeah. Kieran, I mean, those the 100 cricket series we've just seen, the graphics on those were difficult enough for me to sort out. They must have been impossible for you to sort out, Kieran. Well, I think there was quite a few things about those graphics which were difficult. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. agree with you. But the the, the colour issue, it was it was quite painful. Now, Catherine, Kieran mentioned the difficulties for colour blind players, and and we all know that he's he's using it as an excuse because he was quite a slow footballer anyway. Uh, uh, but what, he makes a very good point. What what can clubs do to manage the situation for, for colourblind players? Because they could be missing out on a lot of talent, because it's not just shirts, is it, as well? It's bibs and cones and all sorts of things. So are, are there simple things that you recommend to clubs that enable them to, to retain the interest of colourblind footballers? Because we must lose thousands of young men and young women who are colourblind and just give up playing football every year, which is a disaster for their own physical and mental health as well, isn't it? Sure. Well, I mean, there's there's more than one issue with the the players. I mean, we've tried to raise the, raise the issue with FIFA Pro, and FIFA Pro said, um, "Oh, well, yes, we need to support colourblind players, but there aren't any." <laughs> oh, really? So on it, you know, we don't know of very many. Um, so I've literally went out of my way to make sure that I got EU funding for a project to research players. And just to put it in context, we've just started getting some uh, feedback from our Danish club partner. And they've just screened all of their first team players. And surprise, surprise, they've got exactly the right proportion of players who are colorblind that we would have expected. Um, so... Um, that's ongoing. But in terms of players that we already know about, I don't know any players. I hardly know any elite players at all. But I know two players um, who played each other regularly in the Premier League in the early 2000s, regularly, both internationals, and both of them played each other in the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 2002. (laughs) Uh, One of those players, and I won't name anything to do with the colours or the player or anything like that, moved uh, it was an international and he moved for a huge amount of money to a Premier League club. And it's well documented that that player who then was uh, went from a club playing in a colour he could clearly see against the colour of the pitch, 
went to a Premier League club where he would have had a problem as a colourblind player because their kit was too similar to the colour of the pitch, et cetera, et cetera. And his performance was is well documented to have gone well, become it was well under where they expected him to be playing. Um well, that's obviously going to be the case <laughs> if he's going to have trouble with their kit. Um, but he would have had problems in training. They all have problems in training with bib colours, with cones. It may mean that somebody who is a good player but has been faced with problematic training equipment or, uh, I don't know, um, tactics and that kind of thing, if you can't tell the colours of the magnets apart or whatever, might not get selected. Um because he didn't perform very well in a training session because the coach didn't understand that he shouldn't be using certain types of equipment. And, and those type, types of equipment are things like red and orange cones uh, and, and bib colours, uh, such as lime green and yellow are really trendy nowadays, but they look, both look yellow to a colourblind player. So if, if coaches were to understand and read the guidance that's already there, they could take simple steps to make sure that they are playing their best players to their best um, and and the coaches don't know about this either even though the information's out there so not only are clubs paying a fortune for their players that may not be able to cope with the kit colours sometimes um, not only when there's a kit clash with the opposition or a kit clash with the match official or a kit clash with the goalkeepers they might not even select them because they can't perform to their best in the training session running up Do you know I don't think I know any football fan who would even believe that was an issue or, or would be prepared to give a player who's not playing well the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. for being colourblind. It, it's, this is really illuminating and it's, I can't tell you how depressing it is, Catherine. I know so many people in football, senior people in football, who point blank refuse to believe that there are gay footballers. So to find out that there are people who point blank refuse to believe there are colourblind footballers mm-hmm. is even more depressing. Do we know how many colourblind referees there are? Well... <laughs> what I do know is, and this is something I need to be working on, um, which I am going to be working on soon. I do know that UEFA specifically will not permit people to be colourblind on a referee. So they screen them out. But also that is the case down through um, Premier League. And that's something that I need to take up with PGMOL because um, there are, with all the, the problems that Kieran's had this weekend, just give me more ammunition, really. Um if the match officials can't be seen um, from the colour of the players, that's not just a problem for somebody watching on the telly. That is a real problem for a player. And I, there was a player in the Euros who played, who's colourblind, who played in all red against a match official in black. And I watched the whole game watching him. And every time he, he was supposed to be making a pass forward, he was constantly checking where is the ref, where is the ref. Wow. Um, and... Whenever he thought that you could see he wasn't sure where the ref was because he couldn't pick him out from his own team, he would pass back or pass in a direction which he wouldn't have expected him to do. Every time he knew the ref was behind him, he'd pass forward. So there, there are all sorts of implications. <laughs> that, um, I, I, those words, they screen them out. They're, they're chilling, mm. those words, aren't they? Yeah, but the match officials choose the kits a lot of the time. So they, they're given their... I don't know what colour they give match officials to wear these days. They're just bizarre teal and pink. And yeah, Well, pink is a kick clash with blue. Um, so the um, Euros final had 
Italy in blue and the match official in pink. So he just looked like another Italian player. Mm-hmm. And two of the Italian players passed to him in the final. Um, so I don't know if there are any Italian players. I, well, there will be Italian players who are colourblind. I don't know who they are, but I know that two passed back to the ref because I watched it right. <laughs> about four times. Yeah. Um uh, but the match officials don't realise that they are actually disadvantaging one of the ta- uh, teams by doing that. Wow. You mentioned your partners in Denmark earlier, Catherine. Yeah. Do other countries take this issue more seriously, especially in sport? Um, Wales are doing a really good job at the moment. So they have changed kits uh, international level to avoid a kit clash. Brilliant. Yeah. And... Um, Portugal we're doing a lot of work with so they've they are using some of their main first team players as ambassadors for color blindness Bruno Fernandes is one of those good boy um so Portugal get it uh, and they've also had a first team player that they know was color blind who um, speaks up about it so yes there there are changes uh, we also work with Iceland and they've got Lars Lagerbeck as a head coach at the moment and Lars is color blind and uh so that so the Icelandic team, this is quite interesting. I don't know, um, I can't prove anything, but I found it quite interesting when Iceland beat England at the previous Euros, Lars was on their coaching team and he will not allow any equipment or any colours that would prejudice anyone who is colourblind. So he doesn't need to know who his players are who've got colour blindness because all the equipment and everything they do is suitable for colourblind people. <laughs> um, you know. But that's that's not any brilliant, but it's also simple, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and inexpensive. And Finley's timing is always impeccable. <laughs> Finley does know the colour of the post office then. Of course. <laughs> but dogs are colourblind, aren't they? They are, yeah. Dogs are colourblind, yeah. Um, Catherine, it's been I, – I can't tell you how much insight I've gained from talking to you. Know, I, 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 I was prepared to learn a lot, but I had no idea – that the problem is so widespread and deep-rooted. So one last question, and it sounds quite trite in the circumstances, but what are your hopes then for the future? Um, I'm hoping that the message is going to start getting through to the people who make the decisions and they realise that, you know, they can't give um, too little thought to the to the issues because it will come back and bite them because people, as I said before, you know, fans are getting more and more vociferous about what their rights are. So last year, I know that Man United were told, for example, by the Premier League that they were going to be in a kit clash game if they weighed war and away kit. And they thought, oh, well, that's okay. Um, Instead of changing the away kit, we'll just, excuse me, change the colour of the socks. So they changed the colour of the socks and it didn't make a blind bit of difference. And the next thing they found themselves overall, uh, the front, you know, front page of the yeah. sports sections because they'd willingly created a kit clash situation. But they'd done that not realising the implications on their own colourblind players and their own fans. It was just somebody making a decision who didn't have the knowledge. So I think the first thing I would hope to happen is that people are interested enough to protect their own commercial interests by at least understanding the subject and how it applies to their specific organisation so that they can do better. And I think the more people do that, the quicker change will happen. Uh, Catherine, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Um, And as ever, if there's anything we can do on the price of football in the future to publicise or to gain you access to people, then we will happily do that. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. 
Kieran, I don't think I've ever learned more. We've we've done some brilliant interviews on this show. All of them are thought-provoking, insightful. But I don't think I've ever learned more from one interview than I did from that, from Catherine, with an, an issue, as I said at the start, that most of us don't take that seriously. And I, and I was I was astonished by some of it. There's two things in particular. There's one, in fact, we didn't cover properly, and that's the potential cost to advertisers of colour blinders. Yes. Um, so I, I am colour blind, uh, along with uh, you know eight, one in twelve men. Yeah. Um, and and yes, it is a you know if I say to somebody I'm colour blind, the first thing that they will do is that they will point at a shirt and say, "Well, what colour is that then?" Yeah, you know, and yeah. I'll go, "What well, am I supposed to know?" <laughs> you, 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 you wouldn't you wouldn't take you wouldn't take a blind person to a zoo, point at a giraffe, and say, "Well, what's that animal?" Yeah, you know, and and it's it's that equivalent. So it, it and it doesn't stop me doing anything apart from being a train driver. Um, and I I can't tell the difference between red and green. So traffic lights, bit of an issue. But you know, but I, I always give a warning. Anybody that gets into my car for the first time, I, I give them a stamp. You know, I give them a, a formal warning that it's it's a bit of a lottery when it comes to traffic lights. But yeah, we're, I'm, I'm still here. I'm I believe here. it's one of several warnings you give to people getting in your car for the first time. Kieran, but <laughs> let's pass over that for the moment. <laughs> um, but uh, if if we take Manchester United's new away kit, uh, which is blue-ish, blue and white bits. Yeah. Um, colorblind people cannot see the team viewer logo on the front of the shirts. It just blends into the background. So we've got no idea what's on the front of the shirt. And there's a separate issue that we've got no idea what's on the back of the shirt because the numbers, because everything's in red. Um, and because of, you know, Catherine, Catherine was saying it, it's all based on grayscale. Well, the grayscale of the blue on the front and the red is for us, it, it's it's indistinguishable. So you know, I'm going, oh, God, isn't that good? United are no, using, no longer using uh, uh, sponsors. Yeah, that, 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 that makes me hanker for the glory days. Yeah. Uh, but then you sort of you say, oh, there's, what, what, there's, there's something on it, but it just looks a mess. So, so the, you know, the, the sponsors are actually losing out because I've got no idea what it says. So that that means that they clearly aren't aware of this because that means with the figures that Catherine gave us, if if eight to nine percent of of men and it's mainly men, as Catherine explained, if if eight to nine percent of the people watching football can't see the sponsor over over the the world, that's several million people not aware of the company that are sponsoring Manchester United, which is not good for them. And the other thing. I, I, I was seriously was so taken aback by this information that I started texting friends about it who agreed this, this idea that kits in this day and age of, you know, space age software kits are designed on a white background. That makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, but then, you know, the, the, the chances are is that if you are a clothing designer you're not going to be colorblind, are you? Because oh, yes, because yeah. Yeah, how, how could I design something when I can't see that? You know, you know, one of the things you take into consider, yeah, fabric style. Well, color clearly is a critical issue. So it, it's like many of these things they they, they become self selecting. You you don't tend to get um, uh, uh, you know designers who are colorblind because we you know we we can't do it. It's um, and then you know, it, I was staggered at the fact that 
yeah, the, the the players' union are trying to say, well, there's, there's no, no the, colour blind players. There's no colour blind players. Well, and, and if that is the case, if they are true, then isn't that indicative of there is a huge problem because they've yeah. automatically excluded eight percent of males from the talent pool. And yeah, you know, I, I know the the players that Catherine referred to. Uh, and you know, I, I absolutely respect their anonymity because yeah. you don't want to, you, you don't want the manager to know, you don't want the coaches course, to know because you're competing against you know two other players for your place. And if they think that you've got a genuine problem and that could delay your decision making by half a second or so, they're going to play somebody else. So it, it's a really awkward issue. You know, it, it's it's similar. To you know th- those people, so there's no such thing as a gay footballer. Well, mm. well, of course, not, yeah, that's just complete garbage. Yeah, I, I have to say, Kieran, and you know this because you were there. I at the end of yesterday's interview, I felt I felt so bad about my previous light-hearted attitude uh, to colour blindness that I felt I had to cleanse myself by telling Catherine that, as part of one of my Edinburgh shows, I used to do a joke about a family who were so posh. When their kid was diagnosed with colour blindness, they got him a guide dog whose job was to walk down the street going blue. Um, uh, and there was a slightly awkward three second pause before Catherine decided that she was going to laugh at that joke. It's just, I just felt I had to share that with her because I, I like I say, I, I feel I don't feel ashamed, Kieran, because I never had the information at my fingertips. But with, with hindsight, Again, like you say, somebody says to me they're colourblind, and instinctively you 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 get a glass of orange juice and and say what and it's it's and it's odd and it's it's and the thing about emergency exits as well that's the other thing that yeah. there are people in that grounds that can't, that can't distinguish emergency exits and uh, so many things that you just think oh my god it didn't even occur to me that and uh, uh, she, it was really interesting and really eye opening and I I hope well actually I hope people still. Yeah, it's nice to include people, colourblind people, in jokes as well. But you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, just, we 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 don't take it. We don't get offended. No. Yeah, I still think that you're using it as an excuse for not being a very good footballer back in the day, Kieran. I have to say, but well, th- there was that and being afraid of heading the ball, which I think <laughs> held, both held me back. <laughs> well, the balls were quite tough in our day, weren't they? <laughs> they were. Yes, yeah? yes especially at half end. Exactly. If it, exactly, <laughs> if the ball wasn't crossed towards you with the laces facing the wrong way, Kieran, you weren't going to head it. Um, and thank you, as ever, to all of those of you who have contributed to our Always Free to Air pod via Patreon. That includes Rob Edgerton and Cameron Thompson, who says what you guys do has never been more important. Thank you. Also, Brent Hudson, who I like the sound of. Brent says, ultras often kick other fans out of their seats so they can bang their drum. But I'm more dullard than ultra, so I love the pod. I think that's a compliment. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Keep up the good work. If you want to join um, Brent and... Uh, Cameron and Rob then go to patreon.com forward slash price of football if you have any questions for our regular questions pod on a Monday it's questions at price of football.com and in the meantime while I entertain myself watching Finley open the door I shall hand you over to <laughs> Mr Kieran McGuire for his customary farewell uh, well thanks again folks for the feedback thank you for uh, advising me of my Poor pronunciation of words. It's it's all, you know. I, I'm an old man, but you know, I, I'm a great believer in lifelong learning. So so you know, I I, I always take these things as a positive. Um, clearly, you know, Kevin has mentioned Patreon. If you want to support the show, that we're, we're always very grateful. But 
If you just want to give us some some good karma, you, you can do so by going on to that purple Apple icon, uh, pressing follow. And if you if you can give a review, if you can give us five stars, it, it doesn't matter what you say. It's the stars that matter, not the words. So you can abuse us as much as you want. Um, but if you give us the five stars, it helps. It helps the business side of things. Uh, it, it helps us in the charts. And you know, that's always an issue for us. We are trying to to book uh, guests who are as diverse as, as we can from different parts of the football business. Uh, you know, and, and Catherine, you know, the work that she's done with, with the football authorities, I think is amazing. Um, it just adds to our credibility. Um, so, so thanks very much for that. And apart from that, uh, look after yourselves and to everybody who is working for Derby County Football Club, everybody in the football world is sending you love and positive vibes and, you know, just wishing that you get through this. Um, you know, we know, you know, we, we've had messages on the podcast from members of staff, um, you know, asking, asking us the questions that the, the club should be giving to you. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, God willing, every, you will come through this, but uh, uh, best wishes to you all. Here, here. The price of football. Bye, son, for the fall.